Now, Paul in chapter 1, as we recount the steps that we've taken, he calls out those who know in conscience where the Holy Spirit speaks to us, where he rebukes us, where he corrects us, where he encourages and exhorts us, and where he reminds us our need for him in our conscience, that we know that there is a God. We pointed that out in chapter 1. In fact, in Romans 1, 18 and 19, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, by the way that they're living their lives. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. But that truth, that light, is being suppressed. Why? Because they like the darkness. They want the darkness. They choose the darkness over the light. Why do they do this? Why did we ever do this? Well, in John chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, it tells us, He who believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed." We don't want to expose those things in our life. See, these were the Gentiles Paul was addressing in chapter 1. Those who didn't know Christ, the unbelievers, and whose lives were clearly representing what was in their heart. These are the ones that were saying, I'm all good. Nothing wrong with me. I can live my life how I want. God loves everybody, and I'm going to go to heaven, and it doesn't matter what I do. But just as Paul was addressing them, he addressed the Jews and the Stoics, as we talked about, who were there in Rome. And he says, hey, don't judge them because you're doing the same thing. He was talking also to those who were in high view of themselves, thinking that their status saved them. Oh, I'm rich and famous, so I must be doing something right. I must have something that God approves of. Oh, I'm in government, and I have all power. Everything must be okay. I don't have need of anything. But as we have read already and spoke about last week, in Romans chapter 2, 5 and 6, recapping for us, it says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. This is what we're going to see today. Notice two things addressed in both camps of people that we're talking about. Suppression of the truth and the wrath of God. One, active suppression of what God has revealed in conscience through creation and two, willful ignorance of the truth of the word. And Paul even quotes the words back to them. 
their own words, the words of God that they said they trusted in. And he repeats it back to them. And both camps, having all this knowledge, having the witness of the Holy Spirit, having the witness of God's word, having everything laid out before them, willfully ignoring revealed truth. And as a result, that's what's bringing the wrath of God. Now remember with me that word wrath. How is it being used here? What's the right view of it? What's the right word being used? In the book of Romans, it is used 10 times. And it's not the Greek word here anyway, of thumas, the red-hot anger of uncontrollable outbursts. It's orge, to swell. It's that fixed, controlled judgment of God, demonstrating God's long-suffering. He's patient. Let me remind you of some words that I've used from some wise men already. Plus, I would like to add another I've already referenced him before in one of the messages prior to this, John MacArthur, and he writes, This is not an impulsive outburst of anger aimed capriciously at people whom God does not like. It is the settled, determined response of a righteous God against sin. I quoted R. Kent Hughes, who said, The wrath of God does not portray a deity who flies off the handle and indiscriminately thumps anybody who happens to be at hand. God's wrath is perfect as to its quality and its object. That is the general concept we must keep in mind as we go through our passage. And I'd like to add just one more from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he writes this, We must go on to make sure that we are clear in our minds as to what is meant by the term wrath the wrath of God. Oftentimes a misunderstanding arises because we will tend to think of it as is very natural in a sense, but very wrong in terms of wrath in human beings. And whenever we think of wrath, we think of it as some kind of rage. The very term seems to convey to us a lack of control, a man almost beside himself. Well, obviously it does not mean that. Any such thing in the character of God is unthinkable. And so wrath here means God's hatred of sin. Now that is a term that we must use. God hates sin. We must take this view of wrath, you and I, and we must lock it down, screw it down in our brains and remember this as we come through these passages because it will help us in how we view other people living without the Lord, unbelievers. It will give us the right attitude towards them, which is what we're going to talk about. Now, as we've already discussed this very in-depth, God desires all to repent. And so that would match up with the characteristic of His wrath. He's patient, as we see in 2 Peter 3.9, desires all to repent. Now, why is this an important truth for you and I to remember? Because God hates sin. He doesn't hate people. But you and I, in our humanness, when we hate sin, sometimes we hate people that are sinning. And because God hates sin, 
not people. We too must hate sin, not people. That does not mean that we approve of sin. There's a difference. And so you ask yourself, and you ask me, and we ask each other, even those who hate me? Yes. Even those who vote differently than I do? Yes. Even those who march in the streets that say God is love and he loves my 10-year-old child who is transgender? Yes. Even those guys who are playing on the baseball field wearing colors that I don't approve of? Yes. Why? Because go to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and the shortened ones in Luke chapter 6 where it says at the end of the verse, for God is kind to the unthankful and the evil. But read the whole chapter. Read how God tells us how to love. And then you'll understand where he's coming from if you can understand. Maybe just a little bit. Maybe we'll understand just a little bit of the Lord's love. I'm not saying that we approve of sin. We cannot. But we must find a way to reach those in it. And this is the way. We're going to talk about some practical ways. You see, Satan and his demons in the life of an unbeliever, they have an unhindered rule in their lives. The Bible tells us, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Let me put it to you this way, how we view sometimes. Have you ever seen a movie or a, a show where there's a perpetrator who is holding someone hostage and they're hiding behind that hostage blocking themselves? Knowing any harm coming to them must go through the hostage first. And then the scene comes to a good Samaritan or a, a police officer and there's a standoff and the hostage is between the two. The officer then feels like, well, I can take that shot and maybe take the perpetrator out, wound him. And he attempts to. But what ends up happening, inevitably, almost in every movie or show, he ends up wounding the one he's trying to save. Often, with good intentions, you and I take the same approach in sharing Christ. We fire rounds aimed incorrectly. We label people. We call them names. We shout try to shout higher than them and it comes across as hatred towards them. And we must learn how to aim, use the right ammunition, otherwise we will wound those we mean to save. We will wound those we mean to bring face to face with their maker. All we cry out sometimes is, you need Jesus, that person needs Jesus. Why, though, they may ask, why do I need him? Why do I need Jesus, especially if that's how you act? I don't want that kind of Jesus. And then we can respond by saying, well, if you had Jesus, all your troubles will be taken away from you. But we have to remember the people in these pictures, they didn't think they had any troubles. They weren't thinking about universal sin. They thought everything's great. So how is that going to minister to them? Uh, well, if you had Jesus, uh, you'll have riches untold, blessing upon blessing. 
Well, if you had Jesus, you can increase your territory and your lands and you'll have blessing upon blessing for your family and your children and their children and their children for a thousand generations as the song goes. You know what the problem is with that approach? The problem with that approach is already many, many unsaved have all of these things. They don't see a problem with their lives. So what does that do for them? And for those who want blessings, all they ever expect is blessing from the Lord, as if he's some magical person, as if he's some genie that grants them every wish. And so what's created in Christianity? A Christianity always looking for a blessing. But when pain comes, when suffering comes, when challenges come, we look at ourselves as we're going through something, as God's punishing us for something. When we know the Bible tells us those things happen to the good and to the evil. And our relationship with God, our Christianity in the United States and in the world, when we teach this way, becomes man-centered and not God-centered. We begin asking and looking for, what's God going to do for me? And when's he going to do it? Because I don't see any blessing. All I see is striving, pushing, anxiety, problems. But that's what we're promised is going to happen. But we have peace that surpasses all understanding inside. I'm not saying that we can't be blessed. I'm not saying that we won't be blessed. And I want to be blessed in those ways. Who wouldn't? But we have to remember what's being talked about when we're trying to tell somebody about what it is to be a Christian. You want to know what the right approach is? It's the approach of the Apostle Paul here. The Apostle Paul here, he is a persuader. He's arguing through reason, and he's getting them to take another look. Yeah, but I'm not as smart as Paul. You're not? Don't you have the same Holy Spirit that he does? Open your mouth and let the Lord talk. Look for the opportunities. The Lord will bring those opportunities and he will help you and I. The Apostle Paul, the first thing he does here is he talks about God's wrath. But the right view of God's wrath, not you're going to go to hell because of the way you live. No, you're going to go to hell because you don't know Jesus Christ. We'll take care of those other things afterwards. He's talking about God's wrath. He puts it face to face with our maker. What does that do for anybody? It leads us to repentance. Remember taking that second look, taking another look at the evidence to reconsider, to reconsider your stance, your position to change. That's the right approach. You and I, we must be these persuaders, getting others to take another look at the evidence. We cannot hate or scare into the kingdom of God. I cannot argue you into the kingdom. All I can do is pray the Holy Spirit gives me an opportunity to bring you face to face with your maker. The work is his, not mine. It is there that true repentance leads to brokenness of self. Yeah, but now that we know how to do it, 
now that we know what our responsibility is, what does it look like when somebody truly repents? Now that we know the right approach, what does the result look like? Well, let me share with you what that result looks like. In the book of Isaiah chapter 6, and you can turn there if you'd like, Isaiah chapter 6 in the Old Testament, we've been referring a lot to Isaiah. There's a lot in there. But Isaiah, a decent, good Jewish man, a man of promise, a man of promise of the nation of Israel, a a good man that had never come face to face necessarily with the Lord and repented. Do we ever think and consider about Isaiah? In chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, we see him come face to face. We see his reaction, and then we see what he's told to do, to go. It says this in Isaiah 6, 1 through 9, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, or flew to me, he says, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. You see the brokenness that he came to once he realized who God was? He came face to face and he says, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among this unclean people. For my eyes have seen the king. And what happens when he comes to that place? There's repentance. And once there's repentance, what happens? There is forgiveness of sin. Iniquity is taken away. Sins are purged when we accept Jesus Christ. And then we can hear from the Lord his instructions. And he says, go and tell this people. This, my friends, is what it looks like. What a great example. Here is a man coming face to face with God, recognizing his true self and his true need, and he reconsiders his life, he repents, he's forgiven, and God calls him for good works, good deeds. Do you see now why, as we stated over and over, John the Baptist and Jesus and Peter and even Paul talk about repentance first, not last, but first? Paul bringing up God's wrath at the start of his letter? Why? What's the importance? I mean, is this any way we want to get anybody to come to our church? Absolutely not. We want to tell them, hey, come with us. 
Everything looks good with us. Your family will be restored. Everything will happen well for you. You will be rich. You will be blessed. Everything in your life will go well. You know, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do when they're sitting at the mall and they say, hey, is your family having trouble? Come with us. This is what religions do because they're trying to grow in numbers. But Christians focus on you having a right standing with God. We want to grow in numbers too, but also in quality in relationship with the Lord. And you first must come face to face with Him. After establishing repentance is needed, we can come to our outline now for today. The Apostle Paul, he addressed believers up front in chapter 1 solidifying justification for you and I in Christ. He then turns to address all in Rome. We kind of lose the believer at that time. He's speaking to unbelievers, but in that there's some lessons for us. Those who were Gentiles or clear sinners were in obvious need, and those who did not realize they had a need, these are the people he's addressing. And now Paul is bringing into view evidences by pointing out deeds and works. And so what's the point of good works if I have salvation already? What's the point? Why do I need to do anything else? Well, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at judged by deeds. And we'll look at deeds of the righteous, and we'll look at deeds of the unrighteous. As we come again to our study here, we look at verses, verse 6 again. It says, Who will render to each one according to his deeds. Now, we, we just touched the, the tip of the iceberg last week on this verse. We're going to go a little deeper today. Now, Paul is bringing in evidences of life that show what is actually inside of us. And he does this now by bringing the believer back into the picture. And he does it in a way that compares and contrasts. He goes back and forth from the unsaved to the saved. And you know what the thing is here? There's no longer Jew and Gentile. The only thing now, and even still today, is the saved and the unsaved. That's it. See, the Jew had a high view of their standing in this day. They would have never dreamed that they would be condemned. In fact, as I stated this before in another message, I read it again recently by another writer, William Barclay. He writes this, when in the dialogue with Trypho, Justin Martyr was arguing with the Jew about the position of the Jews, the Jews said, They who are the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, share in the eternal kingdom. The Jews believed that everyone was destined for judgment except for them. Do you see that anywhere in the United States today. I think there are many people think that just because they were born here in the United States that they're going to go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Anybody without Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will go to heaven. Everybody else has hell coming their way. But all deeds will be judged See, under the new covenant, it's no longer Jew and Gentile. It's saved and unsaved. Now, there are evidences that our inner lives produce. 
they produce deeds, they produce works, same thing. But we must first understand something about our works, about our deeds, even as a Christian. Did you know, Christian, that your deeds, your works, they're going to be judged? They'll be judged. Judgments will not be based on religion. They'll not be based on race. They'll not be based on gender. They'll be based on works. And here is a great truth. Now listen closely. This great truth is we will all be judged by our works. Now hold on a minute before you run to the hills and say Pastor Larry's gone off the rails and he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's teaching a work salvation. That is not what I'm teaching. Let me explain. See, judgment is based on works. Salvation is not. There's a difference. In other words, salvation is not based upon what I do, but what I do is judged. And what I do are evidences of my salvation. This is where deeds come in for the believer. See, this truth is taught in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Well, where? Where do I find this? Well, Isaiah 3, 10, and 11, in the Old Testament, it says, Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked! It shall be ill with them, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. Again in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Now in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. John chapter 5, 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And then we have Galatians 6, 7 and 10 in the New Testament, the reaping and the sowing. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Not to just those who are the household of faith, to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. You see, your salvation, my salvation, is through Jesus Christ alone, period. Nothing's added, because we know in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. But this faith that you and I have, needs an evidence. What's inward needs to be projected outwardly. Let me give you an example. You ever considered your iPad or your cell phone or whatever it may be, your television, and it's not a projected light onto it and it's projecting back in 
And in many cases, for you and I, it's backlit. And when that light comes on, it, it lights up those pixels and it shows you an image. And it's the same for us. That light comes on behind us, inside of us through Christ. And we demonstrate those things outwardly. We are, represent, we are a representative of the image of Christ in our lives. In Matthew 7, 20, as Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them. By their fruits. You see, it's subjective faith, but objective deeds. In other words, you don't know if I'm saved. I can claim to be saved, but what does my life demonstrate? In other words, again, you cannot claim to know Jesus as Savior without evidence of salvation and... You cannot use evidence of salvation through works without confession of Christ in your life. The two are handcuffed together. You cannot have one without the other. Let me quote John MacArthur who says, God does not judge on the basis of religious profession, religious relationships, or religious heritage, but among other standards. He judges on the basis of the product of a person's life. An issue on the day of judgment will not be whether a person is a Jew or a Gentile, whether he is a heathen or orthodox, whether he is religious or irreligious, or whether he attends church or does not. An issue will be whether or not his life has manifested obedience to God. On that day, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God, as it states in Romans 14, 12. This... Ladies and gentlemen, is how works enter into the picture for the believer. And these deeds, these good deeds, these works, everything we do here will be judged. We will be judged for what we do. Our salvation is not based on that, but our works will be judged. We've discussed this a little bit last week. For the unbeliever, they will be judged at the great white throne judgment. Remember with me in Revelations 20, 11 through 15, there are two separate types of judgments for the unbeliever and for the believer, but all works will be judged. For the unbeliever, it looks like this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from, those, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire." In other words, anyone not found written in the book of life are those who have never accepted Christ, who may think, I'm all good, don't need it. For the believer, however, the believer's works will be judged, but they'll be judged at the Bema seat of Christ. The Bema seat. The Bema seat is found in Romans 14.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10, and you can read those when you have a chance. But 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, the Apostle Paul writing again says, 
For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see that? We still, our works will still be judged, but we'll be judged and receive rewards or we won't receive rewards, but our salvation is sure. You see, what we do in this life translates in this life and it is examined in the afterlife. Whether we're saved or unsaved, I think we as a church forget this. We forget that even the saved will have judgment upon our works. See, what we do here will be judged. It's as uh, Alexander McLaren puts it, it just tells us that there are degrees in that future blessedness proportion to present faithfulness. And as Lloyd-Jones says, if we are saved, we are regenerate, and you cannot have the new life of God in you without its leading to certain results. And what are these results? These are deeds of righteous, deeds of the righteous, as we turn to, as we go to verse 7 here. In verse 7, it says, uh, reading from verse 6, to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So we find them here in verse 7, the evidence of those who have eternal life in heaven are those who patiently continue on in this world of, op of opposition, steadfast with the Lord. Good works, good deeds are the result of salvation, but not the merit meritorious cause. They don't cause the salvation, they affirm the salvation. This is where they come in. This is the right picture of the works. I like how H.A. Ironside puts it. He says, Everything in our lives that has glorified God will be looked on in that day of testing as the gold that has His approval. If we have acted like men and women redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, our actions will shine out as silver. All things that have been in accordance with the Word and have sprung from the renewed nature that we have through grace will be like costly stones built into the edifices of our lives. The beautiful life of the inward salvation that we have comes out in the way we live our lives. And that is in an effort to draw somebody else to Christ. The believer continues on doing good. Everything that we do should glorify the name of the Lord. We do, a many, we do many things uh, that we think sometimes is in the name of the Lord. I mean, we can get into so many activities in this church, one thing after the other, but if there's no need and the Lord hasn't told us to do it, then it could be very well that we're doing it in our own efforts. And when they are judged, when they're presented by the Lord, we may not even be rewarded for those. I wonder how many church, how many churches can get by with, without half of the stuff that they do. I wonder how many 
are doing it as unto the Lord. I wonder how many the Lord has told them to do what they're doing. Has the Lord told us to have a men's breakfast every month? Has the Lord told us to have uh, a Friday night prayer meeting every month? Has the Lord told us to do these things? We must pray and ask the Lord what he wants us to do and not move without him. The believer has to continue doing good. It's a constant revelation of what is inside. It's the whole tenor of a Christian's life that will show that they are a child of God. Not for salvation, but as a result of it. William Newell explained that this well-doing is subjection to and obedience to the light God has vouched saved. I love that word. The light, in other words, that God has shed on your life to do. What do those things look like? He goes on to explain, to able, well-doing or good deeds meant approaching God by a sacrifice as a sinner, as he had been taught to do. To Noah, continuance in good works meant building an ark to save his house and preserve life upon the earth, involving years of labor and the ridicule of man. To Abraham, it meant leaving his country, his relatives, his father's house, and becoming a stranger and pilgrim on the earth. To Job, it meant his God-fearing, evil-rejecting life, and afterwards, in the midst of his great affliction, bowing before the presence of God in dust and ashes. To Matthew the publican, it meant rising from his business and following the Lord Jesus. So we, you and I, as born-again Christians, we must ask ourselves, what good doings has God called us to fulfill? And are we doing them? It could be any number of things. And once we know that, then we ask ourselves, for how long? We must continue until the Lord returns. That's the answer. So that what? We might hear, well done, my good and faithful service. You see, the true essence of a believer is continuing on with the Lord, walking with Him, even in our darkest moments, even when we don't feel like He's with us, when we're lonely, when we feel like He is not around. We must cling to His Word. We must continue on because that light lives inside of us. He will meet our needs. He will come to us. We need to remain with Him steadfast in continuing in patience in continuance in doing good, seeking for His glory, for His honor. Not so that we would always be blessed, but that His name would be lifted up. This is the right view of the Christian life in this world, especially in the times that we're living in. We move on in verse 8. It says, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, for them it's indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. These are the qualities or evidences of a life 
of a person who does not have salvation through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see what they keep doing? They keep on disobeying the Lord. They keep on actively and willingly pushing Him away. I'm okay with where I'm at. They keep on obeying their selfishness, the lust of their flesh, because it's sin unhindered. This is the one who doesn't feel any conviction, the one who doesn't feel any weight of sin in their lives because internally they are dead. They look alive on the outside, but they inside are dead. I'm probably going to mess this up, but I like a story I heard recently, and I put my own spin on it, but I put my own phrases on it. But a young man comes to an old wise preacher and says, Pastor, you talked about the weight of sin in your sermon, how it can feel so heavy inside your soul as if it's crushing you. And the pastor says, yes, I remember. And the young man replies, well, uh, pastor, I don't feel any of that weight. In fact, things for me feel quite the opposite. I've never felt that crushing feeling. So how do you explain that as I'm sitting in the church listening? The wise pastor thought for a while and then he opens his mouth and says, well, if I took a brick that weighed 500 pounds and laid it on the chest of a cadaver, would it feel that crushing weight? And the young man answers, of course not. And the pastor asks, well, why not? And the young man quickly replies, because it's dead. And that's exactly the point. Those who don't feel that crushing weight of sin, who have not been brought before their maker to realize who they are and to bring to repentance are dead inside. They don't understand. They don't understand their needs. See, the qualities of a person who's dead inside spiritually are also evidenced by their deeds. We see it very clearly in these scriptures that the Apostle Paul is taking us through. There's no repentance and there's therefore no salvation. There is eternal tribulation, anguish in eternity in hell, cast into the lake of fire. And you know, if there wasn't just uh, a wailing and gnashing of teeth, if the fire and having all your senses wasn't enough pain and anguish to suffer in, in hell, in Gehenna, which we will describe probably more next week, you know what the remembrance of opportunities that you have will be the most torture? The separation from your loved ones, having the knowledge that you'll be separated for life and that they're spending eternity in heaven and you're in eternity in hell, you will have all that remembrance. Remembering all the times your wife or husband tried to talk with you about Christ, but you said, I don't need it. Remembering how many times you sat in church listening and knowing and saying, saying, well, maybe later, maybe next week, because today these are the things I want to do. Remembering how you thought God is love and accepts everyone's lifestyle. And the human writers of the Bible must have just made errors in their interpretation. Or that man who I told you about weeks ago had that sticker in his window telling all the Bible thumpers what they could do with themselves to leave him alone, remembering all the times they tried to reach him, and he's going to remember to himself, I remember, I remember, and I should have listened, but guess what? It's going to be too late. 
And if that weren't enough, what about the separation? I think about the days we're living in in this pandemic, what's happening in the world. And you know, it hasn't gone away, has it? We see it happening in many families still today. And many of us can't see our children, spouse, whoever it might be in our family. We have to keep the door shut. We have to be in lockdown for a few days in solitude. And we can't reach out to anybody. We can't hug anybody. We can't hold them. We can't feel them. And imagine being in the outer darkness, so alone, so tortured, and never, ever being able to do that again, completely separated. That is outer darkness. That is torture. That's eternal tribulation and anguish in eternity and hell, among all the other things. Does this describe you today? I wonder. How many times you listening, you watching, has someone asked you if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? How many times have you turned it down? It is my hope that I've clearly presented an opportunity for you to come face to face with your Maker in a hope that you would see your need, in a hope that you would repent. And for the believer, that you would remember what your good deeds and your good works should produce, not only in your life, but to carry out to others in this world. Let's remember those things. If you need to accept Christ to do, you can do it right where you're at. It's between you and the Lord. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to do any of that. You just need to ask Jesus. You need to mean it with every center, with the very center of your being, that Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are the Savior. And I want you to come live in my life and change me. And from today on, I will live for you in patient continuance in doing good works so that others might come to know you. Do that. Have the salvation of the Lord today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Father, for this opportunity to gather together. Lord, to hear about what's going on, to realize, Lord, that the deeds in our lives as believers will be judged, but Lord, that they in this life are evidences of our salvation and that we need to continue on doing them, that they are, not, that they are the result of our salvation. They are not needed for salvation, but the two go together, Lord. Lord, for those of us uh, listening, Lord, here that don't know you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal yourself to them today, that they would set aside everything, really look at the evidence, consider in their lives, sense you speaking to them and saying, Lord, I, I give like Isaiah. I'm undone. I need you. And Lord, produce in their life good works. Lord, may they not turn aside anymore. May they look at what you're telling them, the truth of the gospel, because Lord, this world knows it's true. Lord, we thank you so much. And Jesus, we ask, Lord, if those have uh, uh, invited you into their hearts today, that they would reach out to us or to a good church around them, Father, that we could point them to that they might grow in the grace and knowledge of you, opening up your word, discovering who you are. Lord, walk with us, be with us today, go before us, Lord, 
We do seek your blessings, Lord. We desire them. And may we begin to store our treasures in heaven, Father. Where you are at, that's where we will be. But while we're here, Lord, help us to continue on, waiting patiently for your return, doing good deeds, Father, in love, as unto you, to glorify your name. We pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.